I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you've been looking at your bulletin this evening, maybe you've noticed that the title of the sermon is, What is Repentance? And repentance seems like a topic that's kind of out of the blue. Uh, We haven't really been talking about that. We haven't really covered that a whole lot or or been talking about that a whole lot on Sunday mornings. Obviously, I, I have no idea what happens on Wednesday nights. I'm never down there. Uh, but the reason that, uh, that I wanted to preach on repentance is that it's, it's been on my heart. Uh, we have been studying through the book of Jonah with the youth. And one of the things that we see in, in chapter 3 of Jonah, which is where our call to worship comes from, is the repentance of the king of Nineveh. Uh, and I actually, we're going to look at that again here in just a few minutes to see uh, what exactly he does and how that helps us understand repentance. Uh, but... Most of you know that Sam and I went to Boyce College, which is the undergraduate of the Southern Seminary, and we both got our undergrad degrees there. Sam was in counseling, and mine was in preaching. And while I was attending, I had the opportunity to get a part-time job for the school, and it was pretty cool. I was a student ambassador, and so what I would do is I would represent the school by going to college fairs or going to high schools or events like that. And I would bring a suitcase with me with all kinds of literature explaining what the school is all about, what's our mission statement, what kind of degrees we offer, and things like that. So I would set up a table, and as students would come by, you know, they would kind of notice, and you'd try and have uh, everything looking real nice and sharp so they think that you got all your stuff together. Uh, And I would have an opportunity to explain to them what our school is like and to encourage them to come check us out. But then once every semester, I had another uh, opportunity Uh, It was called Preview Day. And so what Preview Day was is where uh, everyone who's a prospective student and their families would be invited to come check out the campus. And so this would be a a whole day that is dedicated to trying to make these prospective students want to come to school here. And so they would have some of the nicest meals that day. Uh, They would set it up to where the, the parents and the students would get a tour of the campus and they would see how beautiful it is. Uh, they would get to meet, uh, meet with some professors and sit in on some classes so they could get an idea of what the, what the school and what the classes were like. But then usually at the end of the day, they would have the kind of the nightcap, all right? And so this, this would typically be an event with Dr. Moeller. Now, Dr. Moeller's the president of the seminary, and he actually came and spoke at our 100th homecoming. Uh, and in theological circles, he's kind of a big deal. And so it's pretty cool that he would put time on his calendar to sit with prospective students. Uh, and I remember this one time, it was in particular, uh, he was having kind of a Q&A with, with the students and, and their, their families. And so I remember I was being an ambassador, I had been working the whole day, I was kind of tired and we were all kind of hanging out in the back. We didn't have a whole lot of responsibility during the event, uh, but a, a, a dad of a, a, a prospective student gets up on the mic and he asked Dr. Moeller, he says, Dr. Moeller... Could you explain for all of us your understanding of the gospel? Seemed like a pretty straightforward question. And so so Dr. Moeller answered it. But what he neglected to include in his explanation of what the gospel is, is repentance and faith. Repent and believe. And so as he finished his explanation, the father stands back up to the mic and he says, Well, well, didn't you forget something that's that's pretty important to the gospel message? And that is that we we must repent and believe. And Dr. Mueller said, that's not the gospel. That's our response to the gospel. But that in and of itself is is not the gospel. And there was a couple other questions back and forth, and I don't think the the dad really liked that response. 
But it got me thinking just the other day as I was thinking about this that, that I think a lot of us maybe have a skewed understanding of what repentance really is. That maybe we've never really spent time considering what biblical repentance looks like. And so what I wanted to do as, as I came to it in Jonah and as I see it here in Ephesians, I want us to look here at, at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 25 through the end of the chapter. And I want us to kind of get a, a more of a biblical understanding of what repentance is. Look with me in verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Let me pray. God, we ask that as we meet this evening and that as we look at this passage from the book of Ephesians, that you would help us to understand. And that as we talk about this broad topic of of repentance, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand. God, the New Testament speaks very much about repentance. It is important for us to understand what repentance truly is. So God, we ask that you would be our helper tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, repentance. The 15th century, or sorry, the, I don't remember how centuries work. 16th century is the 1500s, right? Yeah. So, there was a guy that lived in the early 1500s. His name was Martin Luther. And he was kind of a big deal. He's one of the reasons that we are Protestants and not Catholics. Uh, because he posted this, this list of 95 theses on a, a church door in Wittenberg. And the first of these 95 theses said, when our Lord and Master Jesus said repent, He willed that the entire life of the believer should be one of repentance. And so the very first of all of his problems with the Catholic Church was, number one, repentance is something that should be the entire life of a believer. Our whole life should be one of repentance. So what did he mean by repentance? And what is repentance? The New Testament talks a lot about it. Like I said, repentance was the message of John the Baptist. The beginning of Mark, verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance was also the message of Jesus. Later in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In Luke 5, Jesus says that I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. In Luke 13, Jesus says, But I tell you, unless you repent, you also will likewise perish. And in Matthew chapter 11, 
Jesus begins to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And again, in Luke 24, at the end of Luke's gospel, this is like the equivalent of the the Great Commission in Luke's gospel. It says that Jesus uh, began to teach them and said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So clearly, repentance is essential to the message of Jesus. But also, if we look at the book of Acts, where the church really begins to grow and, and the apostles begin to preach the word of God, we've, we quickly find out that repentance is, is essential to their message as well. Acts chapter 2, verse 38 says that Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And again, in Acts chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, we see, it says, But God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, thus he fulfilled. Therefore, repent and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. There's a ton more references that I could read to you, but it's pretty obvious that it's the message of John the Baptist to repent. It's the message of Jesus that we are to repent. And it's the message of the early church fathers in the, the book of Acts that we are to repent. And so we, we've got to ask ourselves the question, well, what does it even mean to repent? What is repentance? And to give us an understanding before we look at what Paul says here in Ephesians, I want us to go back to our call to worship. So go back with me to, to Jonah chapter 3. And I want us to see exactly what it is that the king does that helps us understand repentance. Look with me at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, he removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. So there's, there's three things that were really happening here as we see the king and what happens is, is, number one, the word reaches the king. So this word that is reaching the king is the word that Jonah proclaims as he comes into the city. Now, if you know anything about the book of Jonah, God called Jonah in chapter 1 to go preach to the Ninevites. And he said, nope, not interested. So he gets on a ship and tries to go the other way. Well, God brings a storm. And then through a series of events, Jonah gets thrown overboard, swallowed by a large fish, and after three days, thrown up on the ground. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, it says the word comes to Jonah a second time and tells him again to go to Nineveh and preach because their evil has come before God. And what he does is he begrudgingly obeys, but yet he goes and he says the simplest proclamation that you've probably ever read in the Bible. And he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's the word that he preaches to Nineveh. And it says in verse 6 that the word reaches the king of Nineveh. So repentance always begins with the Word of God. The Word of God is going to confront you and me in our sin, and that is where repentance will begin. That's where it begins here for the king. The Word reaches the king, and now let's see how he responds. He arose from his throne, and he removed his robe. Now think about a king. As you picture a king, we picture someone who is is great authority, someone who's got all the lavish things of life. Anything he wants is is brought to him at a moment's notice. And the the two symbols of that are probably going to be his crown and his robe and his throne. And when the word comes to him, the king of Nineveh 
arises from off of his throne. He, he, he takes himself up off of his throne and he removes his robe. He takes the two things in his life that are probably the, the biggest symbols of authority and power and he takes them out of his life and he removes them from himself. But then secondly, he replaces them with something. He says he covers himself with sackcloth and he sits in ashes. So he doesn't just remove these things from his life, but rather he then replaces them. And and sackcloth, to put on sackcloth in the Old Testament is basically a way of showing us our humility before God. Sackcloth was not a, a desirable clothing item. It was a way that we would show that we are sorry for what we have done. It was a way to show our humility, to humble ourselves, and to sit in ashes was similar. And so here the king of an entire nation when confronted with the word of God, removes these things from his life and then replaces them with with something else. And that understanding is going to help us understand what Paul is talking about in the book of Ephesians. So turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Now it's important that we understand a little bit of context here in Ephesians 4. Ephesians as a book, it's six chapters, and it's really split up into two halves. So Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 is very much so heavy on doctrine. Who is God? What is God like? Who are we? What are we like? What is our problem? How is that solved? And so Paul lays all of that out in chapters 1 through 3. But then in chapter 4, he begins to change from doctrine to practicality. Because of the doctrine, because of what's true about God, and because of what's true about us, here now is how we should live. Look at chapter 4 verse 1. He says, therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So here, Paul is saying, therefore, because of what I've just said, because of everything that I've just laid out about God and about ourselves, I'm going to urge you to now live in a manner that's consistent with what we claim. So if we're claiming to be believers of God, As the saying goes, if you're going to talk the talk, you you better walk the walk. And that's basically what Paul is saying. And so he gets into this conversation where he begins to talk about putting off the old self and then putting on the new self. And the idea that Paul is, is kind of using here is the idea of changing clothes. So now you and I all have certain types of clothes that we wear for different situations. If we were all headed to a funeral right now, there are certain clothes in our wardrobe that we would be going to to put them on as we go to a funeral. And they would be different from the clothes that we would be wearing as we lounge around the house on Saturday night. Because we understand that there are certain clothes that are fitting for certain situations. And Paul is using that same idea to say, the clothing of your life, the things that you do, the words that you say, the actions that you perform, those should match what you claim as your life. So if you're claiming to be a follower of Jesus, the clothes that you're wearing, the things that are in your life should match what you say. And so now let's pick up here in verse 25. And, and let's remember, as we read these things, he gives five examples that I think are are perfect for helping us understand repentance in our life. Now, he never once mentions the word repentance. But as we walk through these, and as we've seen the example of the king of Nineveh, I think you'll begin to see that that it makes perfect sense. And, And it begins to help us understand what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new self. 
The first example we see here is in verse 25. It says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. So here's the first example Paul gives. He says, you know how some of you used to be liars and, and you were dishonest and, and you, you weren't really forthcoming with, with all the information with everybody. You were kind of, you know, like to pull one over on people, take advantage of people. He says, rather than being false or being liars or not being truthful, he says, we're not just going to stop that, but rather, instead of being a liar and instead of being false with people, Rather, we're going to speak the truth to our neighbor. We're going to be honest. We're going to be transparent. We're going to be open. It's this difference of, it's not that we just stop being false or that we stop being a liar. It's that we replace that with now being someone who is truthful and and honest. It's this idea that we're not just stopping something that we're doing, but rather we're turning and completely changing course. Now look at the next, the next example here in verse 26. He says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Have you ever been angry about anything? I think the answer is overwhelming yes. Yesterday morning, um, I was angry about something and I, and I had to talk to, to my wife about it and Turns out it was probably silly. I should not have been angry about it. But typically the things that we get angry about, the things that make us angry, are things that inconvenience us. I get angry when things don't work out the way I had anticipated. I get angry when something doesn't go my way. And that's usually what angers most people. We get angry because things inconvenience us or things are a problem to us. That's such a selfish way of thinking. But Paul here understands that not all anger is sinful. Because he says here, be angry and do not sin. So I think the idea that Paul is giving us here is no longer be angry about the things that just inconvenience you, but rather let's change and redirect our anger towards the things that make God angry. Because there are things that make God angry. Sin, number one in particular, God hates sin God hates those who live in their sin, who pursue after their sin and ignore Him. Those things make God angry. And Paul here is saying, let's not just be angry about the things that make us angry, that inconvenience us, but rather let's reorient our anger towards the things that make God angry. And then he says here, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So what does that mean? Now I've heard some great advice. Uh, When Sam and I were getting married, the pastor told us, never go to bed angry. And I obviously get that from this passage. And that's a great piece of advice. And, and for anyone who's married in here, I would encourage you to, to take, take that up. But I don't think he, he literally means that don't let the sun go down and still be angry. I mean, there's places in the world where there's like three hours of sunlight a day. And I don't think he's saying, well, then you only get three hours to be angry. I think what he's saying is don't harbor anger. Don't hold on to anger. It's okay that we're angry about the things that God is angry about, but let's not hold on to those things. Let's not harbor those things. And he says right after that, give no opportunity to the devil. As you harbor anger, if you hold it in, if you store it up, that is an opportunity for the devil to create that into bitterness, into resentment. Those are 
Those are not things that, that are going to help us in godliness. And so Paul is, is helping us by saying we need to reorient our anger towards not just the things that inconvenience us, but rather if we're going to be angry, let's be angry about the things that God is angry about. Verse 28, the third example, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. This one is abundantly obvious. Paul is saying, look, 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 it's not enough that we tell people just stop stealing. That's not the goal. That's not the point. We want people who are stealing to stop. It's not good to steal. But Paul says, rather, let the person who used to steal now work honestly. Let them do honest labor with their own hands. And then look what he says, why? He says, so that they may have something to share with anyone in need. He says, rather than just stopping our stealing, let's change and refocus that energy into now working honestly so that we can give something to someone in need. So that we can now have generous hearts who are willing to give rather than just wanting to take everything for ourselves. It's a complete refocus. It's not just a stop doing this, but it's rather let's change what we're doing to now doing something else. Now doing something different. And the next example is very much the same. Verse 29. Maybe this one hits close to home. It says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now this is is a sensitive one. And this is one that hits all of us close to home. James talks a lot about the tongue. He says it's like the little rudder on a ship that the tongue determines what direction the whole ship is going to go. And he even uses the example of a tiny little flame is able to light such a huge fire. He said that's what the tongue is like. And here Paul is saying, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, stop cussing. Or stop being mean with your words. Or stop tearing people down. Or stop gossiping. That is not what Paul says. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only talk that is good for building up. As it fits the occasion. That it may give grace to those who hear. You see, the whole purpose of putting off the old self and on the new self is not that we just stop doing bad things. It's that we change from doing those bad things and we turn to then doing those same things in such a way that it honors God. Our last example is verses 30 through 32. Sorry, 31 through 32. And in verse 30, he gives us kind of this random little added phrase. He says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Seems like such a random little addition there. Paul, you're talking, you're giving us all these examples of putting off the old self and putting on the new self, and then right in the middle, you just randomly say, and and also, hey, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But as we begin to understand what Paul is is explaining to us, it starts to really make sense. Because in in the end of chapter, or middle of chapter one, really, look at verse chapter one, verse 13 and 14. Paul is saying, in him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so what Paul is saying is that when we believe on Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of our bodies. And that is God's guarantee that we will receive the inheritance that he promises. And now here Paul is talking about putting off the old self and on the new self. And he says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Be reminded that the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. And when you give in to your sin, when you give in to temptation and you live in your sin, that grieves the Holy Spirit who's dwelling inside of you. As if we needed any more motivation to stop our sin and to do what honors God. He says the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of you. And when you give in to your sin, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. You are grieving God himself. Then in verses 31 through through 32, we see the, the last example. He says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. But rather, verse 32, he says, Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Five examples. All five, Paul is giving this idea of not that we just stop doing the wrong things that we used to do. It's not that we just stop stealing. It's not that we just stop sinning by by the way that we speak to people or the way that we curse or whatever it is. Paul says, rather we change from doing those things to now doing the things that honor God. And what all five of these examples have in common is they're concerned with the heart. True repentance is always concerned with the heart of the individual and not just the outward actions. You see, I think a lot of us find ourselves in this cycle of of sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, sin, repent, and it seems like we're not really getting anywhere. It seems like the Bible explains repentance as you're, you're completely stopping and turning away and going in a different direction. But as we understand repentance, and maybe as we've seen it in our own life, it tends to be a cycle. And the reason it is, is because we, we understand repentance completely wrong. We've, we've started thinking that repentance is simply stopping certain outward actions and replacing them with other actions. And so we've got this idea of, if I just stop sinning, if I just stop swearing, if I just stop stealing, if I just stop lusting, if I just stop, you name it, and I replace it with reading my Bible and praying, etc., then I'll I'll be good. I've repented. But we never consider the true heart of the matter, which is our own heart. Jesus tells us in the book of Mark that out of the heart is, is, what, is what truly comes out of you. Out of the heart is what truly defiles us. The true issue with repentance is our heart, not just our outward actions. That's why Paul doesn't say, stop, stop stealing, stop being angry, stop being false, stop, stop swearing. Stop it with the bitterness and the wrath. He doesn't just say stop it. He says rather do this. 
Honor God. Now, look back at verse 22. Here's where Paul is beginning to to explain this, this whole idea of putting off the old self and putting on the new self. He says in verse 20, 22, put off your old self. Notice he doesn't say put off your old practices. He says put off the old self. Now look at what he says about the old self. It belongs to your former manner of life and it is corrupt through deceitful desires. See, I think we've begun to believe that repentance is simply putting off our old practices and not really paying attention to the old self. Because if you try and put off the old practices of someone whose inner heart is is corrupt with deceitful desires, do you think trying to just replace that with good practices is going to last long term? No. Look at verse 23. 